Snatter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. This week on Nailer Snatter, I am joined by Mark Lehane. Mark is the Director of Parents and Teachers for Excellence, whose mission it is to ensure that every school child should have an excellent education and great prospects, regardless of their background. Mark joined PTE in September 2017 as their first ever director, and previous to this he was the founder and head teacher of Bedford Free School. Mark underwent, by his own admission, a journey of enlightenment, having not particularly believed in the benefits of a knowledge-rich curriculum when Bedford Free School was opened in 2012. Mark is in great demand as a speaker and regularly presents at research at events up and down the country and we are absolutely delighted that he'll be with us again in March at Research Ed Blackpool. So I talked to Mark about his journey to this point and I asked him about what lessons he learned from being one of the first founders of a free school. We're going to detail about his Sophie test and I asked him whether it would be fair to say that he had a Damascene conversion to a knowledge-rich curriculum and what was the catalyst for this change. I talked to him about Parents and Teachers for Excellence, which was founded in 2016, and what was the founding vision for PTE. And listeners may have enjoyed this as well. I really enjoyed A Question of Behaviour, which is available on the PTE website. And I asked Mark to give us a little bit more detail about the key findings there and the warm, strict approach. PTE are running quite a few high-profile projects and we talk a little bit more detail about the phone-free schools idea and why Mark thinks this is important. And we go into detail on one of my favourite sections and I'm sure it's listeners' favourite sections of both the PTE website and Mark's talks when he comes to research ed events, which is the section on what should schools teach. So we go through some of the um, more obscure yet well-meaning initiatives that organisations insist should be taught in schools. And we finish by talking about where listeners can find out more details about Parents and Teachers for Excellence and where Mark will be speaking next. So, without further ado, over to the interview with Mark Lehane. Okay, welcome Mark to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're just going to start with the usual gentle introductory question. So uh, I'm sure that listeners uh, know quite a bit about your career to this point, but for those that don't, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey to this point? Yeah, so um, so the first thing to say was when I was at university, the one thing I knew, uh, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but the one thing I did know was that I wasn't going to be a teacher. Um, my dad had been a teacher for 40 odd years, his whole career, he'd, he'd been at one school, and my nan, his mum, um, had also been a teacher. So I knew if there's one thing that I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to do the family thing and become a teacher. And I, I fell into a job in banking as a result um, and um, really, really enjoyed that. Had like a couple of really fun years uh, working for what was then Lloyd's TSB. But about a year and a half into the graduate programme I was on, I kind of had to sort of come out to myself and admit to myself that I actually I really wanted to be a teacher. So I um, went home, uh, broke the news to my mum and dad. My mum was relieved. My, my dad was a bit heartbroken. Uh, and I went back to uni and did my teacher training. So that was 2002. And then I worked in a, ended up in Bedford and worked in a state school in Bedford for seven years. And then the big thing that happened then, I guess, was the coalition happened and Michael Gove became education secretary and suddenly there was this policy called free schools where 
teachers and other people could set up new state schools and are literally within oh, a very, very, very short period of time after that was announced, uh, handed my notice in and started the campaign to open a free school. And we were really lucky in that we were, our proposal was one of the very first ones signed off by the government in autumn 2010. Uh, so we campaigned to get that open and then open in 2012. And then I was lucky enough to be the head there for five years, um, had a great time doing that. And then uh, decided the very same weekend that Theresa May decided to call the general election um, in 2017, which didn't exactly work out well for her. But that, that same weekend, um, I was away with the family trying to figure out whether to stay or to move on from Bedford Free School because uh, we'd set up a little multi-academy trust and we'd taken over a local primary school and we'd also just that week had approval to open another free school. And I was like, do I stay? Do I go? Do I grow the trust? Do I hand over to someone else? Uh, and in the end, I decided to move on and uh, ended up being approached not long after that by parents and teachers, for instance, asking me to, to run the campaign group. And here I am. Absolutely. Here you are. So just picking up on a few of those points, and we're going to talk about all of that as we go through the podcast. But the first thing uh, to talk about is you mentioned there being one of the first founders of a free school. What were the key lessons that you took away from that process? I mean, the whole free school program has been really interesting because um, we have learned so much in the last nine years um, about how you systematically open new schools and get them off the ground um, successfully. And back in 2010, when us and other groups were like being taken into the DfE, into the Department of Education, because we'd been given initial approval, um, the, the civil servants were brilliant. They were so open about the fact that, look, to be honest, we're making this up as we go along. We've not had a program like this before. Let's figure it out together. So there have been loads and loads of lessons um, for all of us involved in the free schools program over the last nine years. I think the main ones that have come through are that the most successful schools that hit the ground running um, best tend to be those, and, you know, I'm, what I'm saying isn't massively surprising, but actually it's been proved beyond all reasonable doubt now. First of all, they've been the groups that have had a significant proportion of uh, professionals, existing teachers, in the proposal groups. So they know already how schools run. Um, they know how to work out the nuts and bolts, the details about whether this idea will actually work when you put it in place in a school. There were some early free school groups that were going to try some really zany, in innovative things uh, and ended up not working out. Um, and I don't think we should criticise anybody for trying new things, but I think we've learned now how to take those risks in a more calculating, uh, careful way. Uh, and I think the other big thing, though, that we've learned about the last nine years is, and this was more of a surprise, particularly for the haters, the people that were opposed to the idea, is that, guess what? Groups of teachers and professionals should be the ones planning and opening new schools, um, that they can identify where these schools will be popular, where these schools will be demanded. And if you go back to 2010 and all the way through to probably 2013, 2014, opponents of the policies were saying teachers, people in education, they don't know what they're doing around this. It should be left to the council to decide where schools go. It should be left to like local democratic accountability. And actually what we've seen with lots of different um, teacher and trust-driven proposals is they've seen before the local council or the Department of Education have seen where an idea, where a proposal will be popular and where it could be successful. And I'm not just thinking about, you know, us in Bedford, 
where the council fought us all the way and said we, it wouldn't work and it's proved massively popular. I'm not just talking about Bedford. I'm talking about probably a good 20, 30, 40, 50 projects that I can lift off, lift off the top of my head where largely teacher-driven or school-driven uh, people said, we think people will want this. And it's, it's proved to not just be popular with parents, but actually the outcomes for kids have been better. Absolutely. And talking of popular, um, a seamless link into anything to do with research at Blackpool, because I always like to segue back to that. <laughs> so you've been a, a speaker for us um, at Research at Blackpool, and I, I struggled to get into the room last time. I was sort of poking my head up at the back. But one of the things that you talked about uh, was your Sophie test. Mm. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that and how that links to, to your, your free school? Okay, so... Um... So there are two things I love to talk about more than anything else because I'm very, very boring. Uh, one is my daughters. I've got four daughters who are now aged between 6 and 13. Another thing I love talking about, as you've already picked up, is, is Bedford Preschool, which is like my fifth child. Um, so when I became a head teacher in 2012, I'd never been a head before. Um, I'd been an assistant head at a really lovely, brilliant local state school, but I'd never been you know, the person in that role as a head making those decisions. So I was aware that there would be a whole load of situations where I'd be asked to sort something out or make a decision that I'd not faced before. And so I stumbled across what became known as the Sophie test. Um, and in essence, the Sophie test is right. If this was my Sophie, Sophie's my eldest daughter, um, if this was my Sophie in this situation or she'd experienced this or she'd done this or she'd heard this, how would I want the teachers to handle it? How would I want it handled as a parent? Uh, what would I want colleagues to do? And actually, that proved really, really powerful for me in terms of trying to think through otherwise tricky situations. And in fact, we ended up referring to the Sophie test with everyone at Bedford Free School, the staff and the students. Um, and, and we summed up by saying, look, if it's not good enough for my Sophie, it's not good enough for our pupils. Um, and I wish I could say it was like a really clever thing or it came out of like research I'd done or an intellectual philosophy. It was purely me as a new head, trying to figure out my way through situations. And then the other side of the best way to approach it was, you know, that, ironically enough, that as a parent. Absolutely. So in terms of another thing that you, you talk about when you go to conferences and, and all the other talks that you do, uh, would it be fair to say uh, that you had some, uh, somewhat of a Damascene conversion to a knowledge-rich curriculum? Um, because when you set up Bedford Free School originally, and I, I, may, I may be wrong in this, Mark, but you had a slightly different vision for it than what, how it turned out. What was the catalyst for the change there? Yeah, no. So, I mean, like most people that came into teaching in the 2000s, um, I drank very deeply of the Kool-Aid that was being chucked at us um, during teacher training and then and then uh, when in schools. Um, you know, as well as the government chucking loads and loads of money at schools, um, they were chucking loads and loads of really, really bad ideas about how to do things. Um, so I was absolutely convinced about the 2008 national curriculum, the idea that, you know, a subject was just a means to develop the generic skills and critical thinking of young people. And, um, and I'd convinced myself I'd pulled off quite well as a teacher in my own classes. So when I came to set up Bedford Free School, whilst we were always going to be what I now call a warm, strict school, we were always going to be really hot on the culture and the behaviour side of things, when it came to the curriculum aspect of the school, um, there was no gimmick that I did not want us to try. Uh, so, you know, we were going to allow up to 20% of the kids' timetabled time 
to be around project-based learning uh, that the kids would derive themselves. Um, I'm very big on engagement, uh, the importance of employability and skills around that. And the thing that changed my mind about what we should actually be doing was, um, ironically enough, was a visit by Nick Gibb, who's the schools minister. But the important thing for listeners to understand is when Nick Gibb visited our school, he was not a schools minister. Um, there was a period of time where he, he he'd been in the um, been in the government, been schools minister. Then he wasn't between 2012 and 2014, and it was early 2014 that he came and visited the school. Um, and I've showed him around the school, and he'd been in at a lesson. It was all very nice. He met students and staff. And the last lesson we wandered into was a geography lesson. Year 10, GCC geography lesson. And, um, you know, there's this image of Nick Gibbers being quite, you know, proper and staid and what have you. He's actually a really charming, lovely, warm guy. But, um, yeah, he, he's quite big on traditional education. And, and bless him, he watched his class of Year 10 kids rapping about fair trade coffee, which was like the least Nick Gibb kind of pedagogy uh, and content, as you can imagine. Yeah. And he watched it very nicely. And then as we left the lesson and out to the crowd, he just stopped me. Put his hand on my elbow and said, Mark, that was um, that was all very nice. But if I'd asked them what the capital of Syria was, could they have told me? And there was like a pause. And I, and I sort of had two realisations in that moment. One was I didn't know whether they'd know the capital of Sudan or Syria. Uh, but even worse, I didn't know whether they should know the capital of Sudan. Um, and it wasn't a Damascene moment in that it wasn't like a flashlight at that point, but it just niggled away at me for the rest of the day. And, and then I thought about it that night. And then the next morning, I asked all my subject leaders to, to send me their programs of study because I wanted to know, you know, what are we teaching our pupils? You know, for the fact, we spent two years campaigning to open this school in the face of a lot of opposition. Uh, the school's been open a year, but hang on a minute, I'm, I don't think I've got a grip of this. So they sent in all their programs of study, and they were really great documents. They clearly put a lot of thought into them. But what became apparent was the focus of our teaching was process, not content. There was a lot of what the kids were going to be doing, but very little focus on what they were going to learn, what they were going to know by the time we'd finished with them. And that then triggered me. That then set me off on the journey of thinking about, well, should we be teaching kids more stuff? And that's when I, like lots of people, stumbled across you know, Michael Young and Don Hirsch and Christine Council and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it's been a real journey. It genuinely has been a journey for me. Uh, and that journey was triggered by, by Nick Gibbs. I like to joke that he was probably, he was either like St. Paul or he was maybe John the Baptist, depending on how he ends up being martyred. So. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of the journey from there, so we're going to talk a little bit about Parents and Teachers for Excellence. So that was set up in 2017. What was your founding vision for that? Well, actually, P PTE was set up in 2016 um, before before I came to lead it. So, but it, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that you would you would refer to 2017 because we had a little bit of bad timing in that the week that it was launched by Dame Rachel D'Souza and some other people, um, it was the same week that grammar schools were brought back on the agenda by then Prime Minister Theresa May. So um, the idea for PTE had been bubbling around for a while, and the idea was. Uh, there were a load of people on the front line in schools, in the grassroots, saying, 
how do we build on the gains we've made the last few years? Forget the fact it's a Tory government, because it's not really a left-right thing. You know, teachers have been given power over behaviour. They've been given more control over the curriculum. Um, like, how do we kind of embed and build on these these reforms? And that's where that's where parents and teachers for excellence came from. But the first few months, they struggled to get airtime, if you like, because everyone was talking about, understandably, uh, the grammar school thing, because the government were trying to bring them back. So... After I handed my notice in at uh, Bedford Free School um, Easter 2017, like word got out a few weeks later because we advertised for a successor for me. And then basically I got a phone call saying, hey, listen, would you, would you consider we need a full-time director now? We've, we've, we've grown a bit. Will you come and run PTE? So I, I thought about it and went and met the directors and thought, what an amazing opportunity sort of to keep my hand in education and build on the things I'd learned but to also do it across a whole load of schools. And, and that's all we've tried to do at PTE, actually. In essence, PTE's got three very simple things that we do to try and promote great culture and great curriculum in schools. Part of it is, um, you know, um, nagging or talking to politicians and journalists and opinion forms and stuff about the things that we think are important. Um, because you can't ignore the fact that there are a lot of people in Westminster and within the policy circuit who, who are making decisions that affect schools. So we want to try and help them make the best decisions possible. But actually, about 80% of my time is working in schools um, or linking schools up or organising events where great people can talk to people in schools. Uh, and that includes um, a small number of parents. I'd like more parents involved, but there are definitely parents there. So basically, what we're trying to do is to put people in touch with one another so we can spread good ideas through the system. Uh, and it's been a heck of a journey. Um, uh, we have, we're linked into just under 700 schools now. Um, and, you know, we send out our emails and our various newsletters to thousands of people. Um, so, you know, we're not massive in numbers, but the thing that I like most now is that we, are, we can tell that we are helping people make a difference in their schools, and that's all that we ever set out to do. Absolutely. And speaking of that, uh, I really enjoyed reading particularly the, the questions uh, of behaviour that's available on the PTE website. Could you tell listeners a little bit about the key findings there? And you mentioned before about your warm, strict approach and how that comes through. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've just said that we're really lucky that all, all PT is is just like a place where people can get together, whether that is online or at events we organise or, or, or other informal means. And I've been so lucky to meet loads of incredible school leaders from all different kinds of schools and contexts. And given the importance of culture, given the importance of designing positive cultures for your staff and for your students. Um, one of the things that became apparent was I'd met some brilliant people who could share their findings and their learnings and that other people in the system would benefit from it. So that's how we came up with the idea of a question of behaviour. And we literally just asked um, a group of great school leaders, can you talk us through your thinking as to how you designed the culture in your school, the routines, the rituals to, to, to make your school what it is today? Um, and I was overwhelmed with the positive response we had from people. And we've got, you know, everyone from uh, Cassie Young, who's the head of a, a little primary school in, in uh, rural Kent. Uh, I think they've got about 80 kids in her school. And it's been a real tough old time um, until recently. And she's, she's really turned that school around. So you've got Cassie talking about what she does in her little rural primary school in Kent. Then we've got um, Jenny, the head teacher of Dixon's Trinity, 
up in Bradford, talk about how they designed their culture in a brand new school in an urban setting. And then we've got Simon Knight, for instance, who's the head of a brilliant special school in Oxfordshire, talking about how in a very different kind of school with a very different um, set of kids to work with, how they've gone about doing that. And what's really exciting is when you read this pamphlet and all the different um, uh, articles in there, Although these people are saying different things, the principles of great curriculum design are all the same. It comes down to they've got a very clear vision about what their school should be like. That is informed by their values about how people should treat one another. And then they have systematically gone about designing reward systems, uh, consequence systems, communication systems, CPD systems, pedagogies and so on to support that vision and those values. And that's what's so exciting. When you see professionals describe systematically how they've gone about doing a really great job, because that's the kind of stuff that we can learn and take into our other schools, into our own schools. Every school will be different, but it, it tells us how we can systematically go about improving schools. And that's really exciting because it means that anyone can take a school and make it even better. No, definitely. And like I said, I really enjoyed reading that. I've taken lots of that, um, the, the, the advice from people in there in terms of things that, that I've written about routines recently. I mean, another shameless plug for my writing. Um, Fantastic. But, yeah. But the thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I've heard you talk about warm and strict. So for those that haven't, what kind of things are you talking about there? So I guess the reason why a whole load of us have latched onto the phrase warm and strict, and, and it's been... Other people have used it for years. I, I first heard it mentioned by King Solomon Academy back in 2010, and I think they may have got it from Doug Lamarv or, or, or someone like that. But for me, what warm strict means is, and, and I think all successful schools use warm strict approaches, what the strict means is that it just means you're really explicit and really clear about the high standards you expect of pupils in their behaviour and in their work. Um, but that you're really, but then you're very supportive in terms of how you enable all pupils to achieve those high standards, and you're also consistent in in, in that if they don't hit those high standards, you're going to nudge them or support them to behave better next time. So that's the strict bit, but you can't do it without being even warmer to get them there. And I don't think we talk about love enough in schools. You know, we don't love the pupils the way we love our own children or our other half. I don't mean like that, but when we are warm, we have to be warm to pupils. We have to show them that we care and we're strict because we care. You know, so the stricter you are in a school, the more you demand of your pupils, you have to ramp up the warmth as well. And so it will manifest itself in everything you do. So, you know, listen, you've not done your homework, but I don't want you to fall behind. So that's why I'm going to put you into a correction tonight so you, you can catch up. It's about getting across to kids. Everything you do is with purpose, not just power. And, and I think warm, strict approaches, they're spreading like wildfire across the system now because for too long, I think many schools have just been warm and they've wanted to, you know, put their arms around the children metaphorically or literally, but they've not demanded enough from the kids. And so kids have underachieved and not had the opportunities otherwise could have done. But on the other hand, we don't want schools just to be punitive and strict. The two have to go together. And that, for me, is why warm, strict is so powerful. And absolutely it is and in terms of I, I used to hear at interviews a lot Mark that when people talked about what's your, what's your view on behaviour it was always I like to see myself as firm and fair 
And I think, mm-hmm. well, what as opposed to, you know, <laughs> soft and unfair. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and some people will, will criticise it by going, well, yeah, isn't that what great teachers all, have always done? And I guess Mark says, well, yeah. But again, what's really interesting is, um, and I have taught you, know, this is not just me being ahistorical and thinking we've discovered something new, because we haven't really. But what is different this time compared to 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when my dad was teaching and we had a, a local authority run system or what have you, what is different now is, again, the systematic, explicit way that people are designing these warm, strict procedures and cultures with a view to it being replicated. That's what's really exciting. So you hear people talk about, and that's why I talk about it, a warm, strict toolkit. You know, you don't when you have a toolkit, you don't use every tool every time. You don't always use a hammer. You don't always use that wrench. What you do, though, is in, in different situations, you'll use a different tool. And we are now, as a system, developing quite a sophisticated toolkit um, where people go, well, look, here's how we do this here. Hey, guys, this might be of interest to you. And other people have to look at those processes or those rituals and think, right, I can adopt that or I can adapt that in my own school. And it's that it's the fact that people are designing these approaches now with a view to them being used elsewhere, whether it's within their multi-academy trust or in or sharing it at research eds or brew eds or other teacher meets or what have you. And that for me is why we're seeing a step change in the way that these ideas are moving through the system. And it's incredibly exciting to see and very heartening as well. Yeah, definitely. And this is what I spoke to Dublin Mob about last week in terms of the, the toolbox and like you've articulated it perfectly there. You know, you don't have to use every one of, in his case, the 62 techniques of Teach Like a Champion. You choose the best thing for you in your context, in your classroom that you can apply to work with your pupils. Yeah, and again, like you know, uh, my, you know, Doug is like the god of this kind of stuff. But what we're doing on our own, you know, humble work, PTE, is exactly what he did: going out, looking at great schools, seeing what they do, uh, capturing it the best we can, and then putting it out there so that other people can learn from it. And just as he did that by identifying some really high-performing teachers in otherwise really tricky contexts. Um, that, that's what we're trying to do in terms of uh, situations over here. So it's not an original approach, but what's really exciting is the ease with which we can capture and then share what great schools are doing on the ground. Definitely. So in terms of other projects that you're running, um, I'll enjoy reading about your phone-free schools project. So you tell us why you think that's important. Yeah, so listen, I mean, I'm an absolute phone addict. I don't know about you and I don't know about the other listeners, but I spend far too much time on my own phone. But... Um, I was aware when I opened Bedford Free School that I wanted it to be a phone-free school, not because I hate technology, not because I don't think I have a place in education, because I do actually, but because I was adamant I wanted kids to be free from the pressures of mobile phones during break time, during lunchtime, during lessons. I think the costs of having schools out, of, of having phones out in school, far outweigh the benefits. And I have to say, I haven't yet met a school that has gone phone free that has regretted it. And they all say the same things. There's less arguments and issues caused by bullying and social media. The kids seem more relaxed and more childlike, you know, actually able to be kids and have fun. And they're actually talking to one another and socialising. And like, my God, we talk about the importance of honesty and social skills. Like, I couldn't agree more. And yet there are still schools out there that let kids have their phones out for a very understandable reason, and yet the most powerful opportunity we could give kids to develop their honesty and their social skills and just be kids is by keeping them away from their devices for a few hours a day 
whilst they were at school. Um, so that's why I was passionate about phone-free schools. We then linked up with Onward, which is a really great little think tank. Um, they did some of the academic research um, for us. We, we pulled together the, the schools. And so we've now got this phone-free school accreditation. It's very simple. It, you know, if schools basically don't allow their kids to have phones out during the day and they reinforce that in some way to, you know, to keep that, that consistent, uh, then they, they can sort of sign up for our phone-free status. Uh, and, and so far, we've got a few hundred schools that have done that, which, again, is, is really, really nice. Um, but the most important thing for me is this, that it's voluntary. I don't think government should pass the law on this. I think it's for head teachers to do it. Um, and I think the other thing that's really, really lovely about it is that it can just grow organically. And as more schools are open about being phone-free, I think that will encourage other schools who maybe weren't sure about whether to make the leap. Um, I think it will encourage more schools to make the leap and become phone-free along the way. Such an interesting point about actually having conversations when your phone is not available. And just, you know, a personal anecdote from a summer holiday, not in a luxurious place, Mark. It was just a down, down <laughs> in the south of England on a haven site in a caravan. But there were no mobile phone masks. There was no reception whatsoever. And in, you know, the uh, the kids club in the evening, the kids were talking to each other. But more than that, the adults were talking to each other because nobody could access anything on phones. And it's just the idea that if it's not there... It's amazing the freedom that you suddenly have to be away from this thing that you're chained to all the time. I think you're right. And, and I, I mean, I think all technologies, they sort of come in and then people go mad over them and then we find a way to keep them in their place. I don't think phones are unique in that regard. Um, but where I do think they are unique is the speed with which they've become ubiquitous. And so anything we can do, like you said, to give people space. And let's not forget, like, creativity in any art form, creativity comes from imposing constraints and limits, whether you're a painter who decides they're just going to use different shades of blue or whether you're a musician that decides, right, I'm, I'm going to uh, write a piece purely in the key of A, you know, A sharp minor or whatever, right? It's like I think there's something to be said for kids just having a few hours a day where they don't have their phones. They can do that when they get out of school. They can do it before they get into school. That's their choice or their parents' choice. But there's something about giving them a safe space in school for a few hours a day. Um, and, they, and they can just, you know, have an, anal an analogue aspect to their childhood. And I don't think there's any harm in that. No, definitely not. And in terms of you talking there about, you know, things that should or shouldn't be made to be taught in schools, one of my favourite parts, there's many favourite parts of your website, but it's the section where um, some of the well-meaning initiatives that organisations insist should be taught in schools. And uh, just a, a personal reflection, I'm often driving into work, listening to various education podcasts, but I also do like to tune in to, to uh, Nick Ferrari on LBC. And the, num the, number of, the number of times that you've popped up to talk about <laughs> some of these things. So would you share with listeners, I'm sure people are aware of some of these, but some of the things that you've got on your website that, sh that organisations have said should be taught in schools. Yeah, and actually, what I have enjoyed is recently I've had a few organisations get in touch with me where they've misunderstood what the purpose of that list is, and they've, they've, they've asked if their suggestions could be added to the list. <laughs> um, so I think they've got the wrong end of it. But basically, yeah, all it was was um, when we, we track what's going on in the media at PTE just to see what's going on in the world of education. And I was becoming a little bit exasperated at the number of schools should teach X, schools should do Y type stories. So I said to my then colleague, Mike, uh, right, you said we're going to start tracking it. This is ridiculous. Um, during 2018, we found more than one suggestion for every school day of the year. I think we found 213 suggestions uh, this way. 
um, in 2018. Highlights uh, included uh, that school should teach sarcasm, uh, that school should teach girls how to get pregnant and how to not get pregnant. Um, and then some of the suggestions I can even barely bring myself to... Um, uh, to say, but given this is a podcast, I presume it's Certificate 18, um, there, there is a suggestion that keeps on coming around schools teaching masturbation. Now, I've got no idea how you do that without ending up in front of a teacher panel uh, and, on, and on the sex offenders register, but this is something which a number of organisations keep on pushing. Um, and I'm sure they're very well-meaning, like all these other organisations are, but the point we're just trying to make is, do you know what? Even if these are great ideas, schools have only got a finite amount of time with children, so we've got to prioritise. Uh, and once we've used that half an hour or that hour or that day up, we can never use it again. So our job as teachers is to make sure we use that time to its best effect. And and really the message I'm saying to schools when I talk about this is, look, if you are not clear yourself about what the purpose of your curriculum is and therefore what you're going to teach children, then other people will make these suggestions for you because... You know, in that 20% of my time where I'm in Westminster or elsewhere talking to opinion and policy formers, I can tell you there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there also lobbying for their own interest in schools that want schools to do more of this, less of that or the other. Uh, and, and so if we're not clear in schools about what we should be doing, those hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists out there will be trying to influence politicians to fill that time up for you. So that's what we're trying to do. It's come, it's come up with some really lovely, funny examples, also some serious ones as well, but really it's just a nice, light-hearted way of flagging up to schools, be really clear about what you're about uh, and, and what you think kids should learn yourself. Yeah, and you mentioned about this podcast being an 18 rating. Well, I've had Mark McCourt on, so, I mean, that, that blew any kind of rating system that I had oh, previously. Oh, agree. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I bet, I bet. I, I almost had to press the explicit button um, on, the, on the podcast <laughs> selection for that one. But what, one from a, a science teacher point of view, this is why what you're doing in terms of raising awareness for parents is really important because, you know, with the recent you know Extinction Rebellion and climate change mm. and, and global warming discussions, the idea that us as science teachers don't talk about anything to do with you know, global warming, etc. you know, that parents actually think that it's worth flagging up from organisations like yourself that clearly this is part of the curriculum and we do teach these things because if you're not in the schools personally, you may not be aware. Yeah, I mean, I was on, uh, I was asked on local radio two days ago uh, and the topic was, I kid you not, should schools teach about climate change? So the, the presenter did, you know, queued it up, did the introduction, said, Mark, should schools teach about climate change? I said, um, good news is they already do. Now, of course, we could have stopped the conversation there and it would have been very brief. But I think he planned to fill up the following 40 minutes up with phone calls from listeners and whatnot. So absolutely, listen, I mean, um, we've come up with six questions that we ask people to consider before they make suggestions about the curriculum. Uh, and one of them is, what do schools already teach in this area? Uh, and I think often people don't, don't ask themselves that. I mean, look, the climate change one is really interesting because it's, politically it's really salient. It is a massive issue. Um, and actually, one of the concerns I have is all these well-meaning people wading in on, on this particular issue, for instance. Um, often they don't think about the fact we're dealing with lots of young children. Um, and so our job as teachers is how do we discuss difficult issues in an age-appropriate way? Uh, and I just worry that people jump on bandwagons and that we end up doing more damage than good uh, by talking about issues 
uh, in a way that, you know, it's just going to freak kids out rather than engage them and, um, and reassure them. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an ongoing battle. Um, and we've, we've clearly our What Schools Should Teach campaign has had zero impact on the sector because the actual rate at which crazy ideas are being suggested for the curriculum in 2019, as far as we can tell, is higher than in 2018. So, uh, you know, um, it's been fun, but it, it, it hasn't yet cut through to uh, these lobbyists and policymakers. Well, this may be a result of your popularity that people are putting spurious suggestions out there just <laughs> just, just to get on your list. I mean, you know, I, I've written a few down that we, we may float. You know, this is quite interesting ideas. I haven't thought of it like that. Okay, we'll shut the whole thing down now straight away. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> okay, just conscious of time. Uh, and again, thank you for this this morning. Really, really appreciate it. Um, in terms of finding out more about PTE, where can you direct listeners to? And in terms of you, where will you be speaking next? And where can listeners see you? So um, I guess there are the two main places people will find us, like most people involved in sort of education, the education debate now. Uh, is Twitter. So our Twitter handle is PTE underscore campaign, um, or they can find me if, if they, they can find me as well because there's education and sourdough anecdotes on there. So they can find me, Lahain, L E H A I N, um, or they can look at our website. Now, the website's very simple, but it's, it's quite, we, we've had a new website made in the last six months. It should be quite easy to find our resources there, whether it's the question of behaviour, we did one recently on school funding and where we prioritise money, or the stuff around curriculum or our list. And, and that's just at parentsandteachers.org.uk. And then in terms of speaking events, uh, my friends like to tease me that I will literally turn up at the open of an envelope. Uh, and it, it's not because um, I'm, I'm desperate to do talks all over the country. It's just I really, really love talking to teachers and I really, really love talking to parents. And right now, I think I just, and I've been in teaching now, what, 17 years Genuinely, I think this is the most exciting period we're going through in terms of schools, teachers, parents doing it for themselves, organising things, sharing ideas in a systematic way. Um, so I'll start a bit research Ed Kent, um, which is coming up whenever. Um, and then I think I'm already booked in for Blackpool next year and um, is it Durrington. Um, and if there's a Brewed within like a couple of hour drive of Bedford, I'll probably be there as well talking about Warm Street uh, and using the same two or three jokes. I've only got about two or three jokes, uh, but I'll, I'll use them wherever I can. But so, two, two um, or what, three good jokes, so that's that's what you need. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so just basically check out Twitter, check out our website, and you'll know all you need to know about PTA. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you for your time, Mark. Really appreciate it this morning, and I look forward to welcoming you to uh, sunny Blackpool in March. Thank you for having me on today. No problem. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at PNA1977. This week on the TDT section, we have Bethan and Maria, and they are joining us live from the other end of the country. So over to you, Bethan, in sunny Plymouth. Hi, Phil. I hope you're well in Blackpool. This is Bethan Hindley, School Programme Leader at the Teacher Development Trust. We've just finished our first day of the Collaborative Teacher Inquiry Project that we've launched in Plymouth. So I am here with Donna Briggs, who is the Deputy Director of the Plymouth Teaching School Alliance, to give a quick overview of the work that we're doing. 
So we're focusing on oracy and continuing the work that has happened so far in the Teaching School Alliance, um, hoping to embed and sustain the work through collaborative teacher inquiry. So I'm going to start by asking Donna to give us an overview of the oracy work in Plymouth to date. Okay, so oracy started in Plymouth in September 2017 and we were successful in gaining a DfE SIF um, funding grant for oracy. So we've worked with 31 eligible schools, but over 50 schools in the city on developing the dialogic classroom and dialogic approach to teaching children across the city. Um, to date, we have what's really positive about the project is we have over 50 schools working with us. And within those schools, Oracy looks different in every school because it's really tailored and bespoke towards the needs of the children, whilst having the basic principles of the dialogic classroom within everything that they do. Fantastic. And um, obviously, we're working together on um, embedding this practice through collaborative teacher inquiry. So can I ask why it is that you chose this approach? What was really important to us when we had the original SIF project was to have an independent evaluation of what was happening within the project and what was happening within schools. Um, from that evaluation, we've had some really positive outcomes around attainment, progress, behaviour and pupil confidence specifically for those disadvantaged pupils which were really keen to support across the city and therefore we didn't want to stop when the SIF funded project ended. We wanted to keep working with action research, evidence informed practice which is really important to us as a teaching school and therefore this was a perfect way to develop oracy further throughout the practice in schools. Fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to continuing to work with you. It's been a really um, evidence-informed and exciting day so far. Um, and I'd like to just finish by asking you what your aspirations are for the project overall. What we hope is we get some really good study lessons within schools, that the schools who are part of this project can come and share with us as a group, but we can disseminate it further through our Oracy Hub and teachers across the city, not just in the schools that are working with us on this project, can really feel the benefits of the approaches that the teachers are taking. Brilliant. And we're really excited to be able to disseminate those findings through our networks as well at the end of the projects. So thank you very much. Back to you in the studio, Phil. Thank you very much, Bethan. Great to hear the fantastic work that's going on with the Teacher Development Trust up, and in this case, down the country. So if you'd like to find out more, head on over to the website, which is www.tdtrust.org. Org. Fantastic interview there with Mark, and I'm still chuckling about some of those well-meaning but yet highly inappropriate suggestions for perhaps things that should be taught in schools. I think we'll leave that conversation there. So, into the shameless plugs section. So, I'll be at Lead Learn Langs tomorrow, which, as you listen to this, will be Saturday, to talk about escaping the hamster wheel, using research and evidence to change culture in schools. And I'll be talking about the work of Blackpool Research School and the Teacher Development Trust and what we're doing up here in terms of continuing professional development using academic research and evidence. Speaking of Blackpool Research School, another mention for Research Head Blackpool, which has gone over the 600 ticket mark. So if you haven't got one, I would get one quickly before we decide to pause those sales. Also shameless plug for our friends at Research Head Birmingham, where I will be speaking in March on a similar theme to Lead Learn Lengths. 
And my latest blog for October, which will be on early careers teachers and instructional coaching with a large nod to Ambition Institute's work. And that will be coming out soon. And new section, new part of the podcast, Klaxon. I'm going to be giving this the working title of Podcast Pedagogy. And what I'll be doing is I'll be looking at the books that I'm reading at the moment and how I'm incorporating the advice from them into my practice in my classroom. And in future weeks, I'd welcome listeners sending their reflections on how you are applying findings from books or guests featured here. So there's a facility to record via the Anchor app, or I'm happy to receive emails via the voice recorder section of your iPhone straight through to the website, and the email there is p3na91 at gmail.com. So look forward to incorporating those into next week's show. We're also going to have a pay it forward section thanks to Jill Berry's advice last week. So uh, on the promotional trailer, if you want to call it that, for this week's podcast, I'll be doing a live draw for all those listeners who are interested in Jill's book. And this can become a regular thing depending on, of course, the generosity of guests to give up their books. So I'll be gifting guest books to lucky listeners. Next week, I've got so many podcasts in the can to go. Which of the absolutely fantastic podcasts will I go for? As yet, undecided. So it's a case of watch this space for next week's podcast. Can I just thank you again for listening to Nailers Natter in association with the Teacher Development Trust, and we'll see you next time. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.